welcome back to You Know What I've Been Wondering. I'm Sarah. I'm Jane. How are you, Jane? I'm doing okie dokie. Easter was this past weekend. It was. And it was like not a normal Easter for my family, but it was like, we we, we were together more than we have been for other holidays this year. So it was nice. That was Um, nice. But my brothers and I are all teachers so all of us had had uh, at least our first round of our vaccine. My mm-hmm. oldest brother had had both rounds, but he, he was still pretty recent. But because, you know, we hadn't received all of them, like we were still careful. We still wore masks. We right. um, ate spread out and like only some people were in, only two people were inside. The rest of us ate on our back porch. Mm-hmm. And um, both of my parents are fully vaccinated. So That's we're still nice. being safe. But good. Um, we do feel like we can slowly begin to do things carefully together. Yeah, which nice. definitely. So that was good. How are you, Sarah? Um, I am good. I, you're like, I was so careful. And I was like, I went on vacation. I like, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I did go on vacation. I went to see our old roommate, Kelsey, my best friend yeah. in Austin, um, which means I got on a plane and it was like kind of wild. Um, I will, I will preface that by saying that like Kelsey and I are both fully vaccinated and have been fully vaccinated for over a month. So we're at like our peak immunity right now. Um, and Kelsey's employers and roommate are also vaccinated and all my roommates are vaccinated. So we felt that it was, and my roommates were comfortable with me going. So we felt that it was, you were careful. Yeah. And we felt like we were at a point where we're like, yeah, like this is a safe thing for us to do. And it was great. We had a lot of fun, did a lot of cool stuff. I think it was a really good um, sort of like dip my toe in the water of like going out and like doing things again, you know? I think it was a good like teaser for like how comfortable I am now, like being in a crowded airplane or things like that. Um, Which after the fact, I felt much better than I did going in. I had some anxiety, but then I felt fine. So it was really nice. It was a really good spring break. Um, And I still left myself time to quarantine which I did voluntarily. I'm technically, I technically don't have to according to New York law, but I did anyway. Yeah. Um, so I got some quarantine and relaxing time and then I went back to work. Um, but my, my exciting news, which isn't that exciting, but like, I think it's exciting is that periodically I will eat a food that I have in the past said I don't like, because I think it's important I've discovered in my life that I'll be like, I don't like that thing. And then I'll eat it and I'll be like, I guess I do like that thing. It's happened to me with Brussels sprouts, happened to me with shrimp. So uh, periodically I'll be like, time to try this again. See what happens. Recently, I discovered that I do like strawberries. I just don't like the texture of them plain. So I'll eat strawberries if they're in things, but I won't just like eat a strawberry. Okay, so like strawberries, strawberries in salad, strawberry in cake, totally fine. I won't eat a regular strawberry, but that still was like a big deal for me. Cause I was like, I've yeah. always said, I don't like strawberries. And now suddenly it like, doesn't bother me that much. So I was in Texas with Kelsey we're in her, we're, we're eating. She's having a mandarin. She goes, do you want a mandarin? I'm like, I don't like mandarins. I've never yeah. liked mandarins, oranges, clementines, none of them because of the texture. And she's like, really? It's good. It's like a gummy. I wouldn't say that, but okay. I was like, okay, it's been a minute since I tried these things. I'm going to give it a try. I was like, oh, I'll just eat one. Lo and behold, a week later, I have a package of mandarins in my fridge. I like mandarins now. I was nice. like, what a development. You're a this, is gr- this is growth. Truly. I was like, I'm an adult. I eat mandarins. 
is how yeah. it felt. So that was that was also a nice development for me to discover that mm. there's another food that I previously thought I didn't like that I do like. Maybe one day I'll try asparagus again. There are certain foods that I haven't had in a very long time, but every time I eat... No, I will say I recently accidentally had a bite of avocado in a salad, and I was like, nope. Um, <laughs> That's all right. As long as you try. Sometimes you just have to try. Yeah. But my mom is convinced I'm the pickiest person, but then she'll constantly, like, make me food and be like, oh, wait, I can't I can't put this in the food because you don't like that. And always be like, nope, that's my brother that doesn't like that. I, you can't put tomatoes in the pasta salad, mom. I like tomatoes. I don't <laughs> like tomatoes. Maybe one day. She just, like, somehow decided that all of the things that all three of my siblings and I dislike, I'm the only one who dislikes them, when, in mm. fact, I like many of those things. They, yeah. It's more spread out amongst the three of us. Right. Okay. Are you ready to get started? I am. Both your segment and my segment were sort they're not this the same because I'm pretty sure your topic has to do with Japanese mm-hmm. immigrants and, or Japanese Americans and mine has to do with more um, Chinese immigration. But we are talking about, you know, topics of Asian history in America. In America. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not... <laughs> Asian history, not in America, goes back, like, thousands and thousands of years, so... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I'm going to tackle it one by one, but <laughs> not yeah, all we're not going to be... Here we go. The entire history of Asia, I guess. <laughs> um, I guess. So, no, I'm talking about the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was the first significant law passed in the U.S. which restricted immigration. Does immigration of, of any form, right? Not just, like, Asian immigration. Like, any immigration. I think any, despite the fact that Chinese immigrants composed only 0.002% of the country's population at the time. I know. So it's like two in every thousand people. That's shocking. Despite the fact that that was, there was only that percentage of Chinese Americans present. Mm -hmm. There was still this growing belief amongst white Americans that the economic troubles of the time and the declining wages were somehow the fault of those Chinese people. Mm-hmm. The belief was that if the government made steps to maintain white racial purity, it would somehow help the working class, which I think is a misbelief that still exists today. That for Absolutely. some reason, my problems are because the problems of the working class are caused by a immigrant group taking our jobs, quote unquote, which right. is just Absurd. Not correct. It's completely yeah, it's absurd. absurd. So let's take this a step back to talk about a different terrible thing that white people did to Chinese people, which I had no, I, I knew nothing about this. I didn't know this existed, but, and that is the opium wars. Now, the oh, reason I've heard of this, but I don't yeah. remember what happened. I'm excited to hear it again. Well, the reason why I wanted to bring it up, it was just sort of mentioned briefly in my research as I was doing it, but mm-hmm. I, I wanted to talk about it and bring it up because in my, maybe I'm misremembering this, but I swear when I was learning history in like middle school, I feel like mm-hmm. I remember learning about like the effect on opium in Chinese history as like, oh, and then there was just this period where things were bad in China because they all got addicted to opium. And I remember it as being more, I think it comes up in history of the world, I guess. Um, mm. I remember it being something that was much more perpetuated by 
England because they were trying to colonize yes. China. That's the thing. Okay. I, I don't know if they necessarily wanted to colonize it, but mm-hmm. like I said, I like in my mind, there was no blame of an outside force at mm-hmm. all. It was just mm-hmm. like, and then there was a time when OBM was bad in China and right. that was bad for them. But no, it was that um, essentially China had all these resources that England wanted and wanted mm-hmm. to trade for, such as tea, porcelain, silk, um, all of these things that could only be gotten from China. Okay. But there wasn't anything that England had that China really wanted to trade for. So China was like, no, we don't really need to trade with England. And England was like not having it. Right. So at the same time, England was forcing their colonies in Bangladesh and India to grow poppy and to produce opium. And they had this idea to smuggle opium opium in through the south of China and sell it illegally, like on black markets, mm. uh, get people addicted to it to establish a a regular customer base, and basically force themselves into the Chinese market. And gotcha. China was not happy with this because they didn't want England to be there trading, and they tried to get them to stop and Mm -hmm. England said no so there were two different wars fought over this um one was China and England and in the second one which the first one was 1839 to 1842 and the second one was 1856 to 1860 and in the second just before the civil war yeah okay and um in the second opium war France was on England's side gotcha and England was like France helped out. England was the biggest perpetrator, but America was also doing it a little bit too. Was okay. also sneaking in and selling opium. So again, like I just felt like there it was I had this idea that there was just this period of opium being bad in China. I had no idea that England was bringing it in and a little bit of America was bringing it in and essentially forcing it on the Chinese and the Chinese yeah. like the people who were buying it were getting addicted and it was negatively affecting their health and the Chinese economy and the Chinese government was actively like stop this we do not want this you are harming our country yeah and England was like well I guess so yeah two wars they they essentially blackmailed them and they were like trade with us and we'll stop bringing in opium was their ultimate kind of and the and they were trying to force opium into being this resource that they had that the Chinese were now addicted to. Like they were literally trying to get their population addicted to this substance Mm. so that they would need them as their Mm. dealer. Uh, But also you're right. It it was sort of a form of blackmail. Um, So anyway, that was just like sort of a a side tangent into the opium wars because I didn't know about that previously and wanted to bring it up. But the reason why the opium wars are relevant is that they left China in debt. And then following that, there was a period of flooding, which caused Chinese farmers in general to be, you know, out of work and in need of money mm-hmm. and were searching for um, new places to go. They wanted to leave China in order to search for work. And okay. in 1848, gold was discovered in the Sacramento Valley of California so Chinese saw the gold rush as an opportunity to go somewhere new and potentially find 
you know, new economic prosperity. In 1852, there was an additional crop failure in China, which brought over 20,000 immigrants in that year alone, arriving in the United States via San Francisco, which was a, a big jump up because I think the previous year it was just like 2000 something. So that was a big boom. They were already coming a little bit, but then that was like solidified of like, okay, they're all coming here. Well, not they're all, but you know, a large number of them. And basically immediately they were met with racism from the white Americans. Um, Incidences of racially charged violence became an immediate issue in general crime and violence was escalating in California, and the blame was placed on the Chinese people, despite the fact that they were the victims of the crimes rather than the ones perpetrating the violence and the crimes. Mm -hmm. Um, The government failed to understand that correlation is not causation, and they were just like, hmm, more Chinese immigrants equals more crime, so we should discourage Chinese immigration, Mm -hmm. even though that was, like, they weren't doing it. (laughs) It was just... There, there was more crime and violence because people were attacking them. This is where I would like to go on a side tangent about the very, very excellent show called Warrior. It's about Chinese immigrants in America. In it's the, I think the show starts in 1867. Um, oh, okay. And it's about, it is about um, two warring Chinese gangs living in San Francisco. Um, and so it's about... Mm-hmm. It's about their tensions as Chinese people, and then all, yeah. but uh, primarily their tensions with white Americans, particularly the Irish cops and the Irish mm. mob. But it's it's it was a, it's based off of a show off of a story that was originally written by Bruce Lee, and then they adapted okay. it for television. It's a very very good show. I think it's is such a compelling representation of this time for Chinese people. Um, it doesn't go into the Chinese Exclusion Act or anything like that, but it does very much go into the use of Chinese labor on the railroad. Um, and I think it's where, a really good show. Where can you watch it? Is it on? It's Netflix on HBO Max, and it is okay. a Cinemax show, maybe Showtime. It airs okay. on television, and then HBO Max has it. There's two seasons so far. Um, there's it's there's queer people, like it's great. I there's karate if you're into that. It's a great <laughs> time. I highly recommend That's great. it. That sounds awesome. I hadn't heard of that, but I also don't watch much TV other than like Netflix. So, Mm -hmm. oh, okay. So because the government of California was trying to discourage Chinese immigration, Mm -hmm. they imposed a foreign miners tax of $3 a month. So just Mm -hmm. for being a Chinese immigrant, trying to mine for gold as everyone in California was doing at the time, you had to pay $3 a month. Jeez. This went on for... A long time. I actually don't think I wrote down the exact year that it stopped, but by the year 1870, the Californian government had made $5 million off of the foreign miners. (gasps) That's so much money. Oh my God. I know. And that was in 1870. So like, (laughs) that's like a billion. I don't know how much that would be. That's gotta be a billion. I don't know. I'll have to look up the conversion inflation rate. Uh, So you would think, though, based on the fact that the government of California was making so much money off of having Chinese workers, you would think that they would want that to, like, I know it was meant to be a deterrent, but you would think that that there would be some sort of effort to make sure that the tax-paying Chinese workers 
in their state would not be having such a horrible experience, but no, they were doing, they were doing absolutely nothing to stop the discrimination and the violence that they were facing in the mining camps and in the places they had to go for work. That's so upsetting. Yeah. And white workers were basically under the impression that all of their problems were the result of these immigrants um, joining their business and quote unquote, taking their jobs. And, and they were issuing a lot of demands to the government to take action. Right. And I thought the building of the railroad would be more of a part of this story. It's more so just the fact that because the building of the railroad was a, like a grueling job that no one wanted the only people who really took it were Chinese immigrants because they were facing so much discrimination in other workforces and they were kind of desperate for work so yeah also I know warrior talks about this and I've heard this elsewhere too there was sort of like a um a scaffolded accepted wage for people according to their citizenship and so American Mm -hmm. laborers they were they they were paid the most typically followed by like irish workers or mm-hmm. white european workers and then the chinese and so a big a big plot line in warrior is that this railroad company is hiring chinese labor because they can pay half what they would pay um an american laborer and a quarter what they would pay the irish and the that's like what the problem is between the irish and the chinese on that show and i do believe that that's historically accurate as well so it was also that corporations didn't want to they were like well we can pay them less so yeah we're going to take them yeah exactly you can pay them less and then in the case of the mining industry they were literally charging them a fee so (laughs) profiting off of this labor force that was being treated incredibly poorly right so because there was this big demand from the white working class for the government to take action in 1882 president chester a arthur signed the chinese exclusion act into law his beard is also stupid so he's the one that is stupid he is the mutton chops oh god (laughs) i've never forgotten that about chester a arthur i couldn't tell you (laughs) one other fact about him but i know he has those mutton chops well, he was the one who did the Chinese Exclusion Act. Now you know well, two facts about yeah. him. <laughs> what are three other things about him? <laughs> I think my goal in life is to be able to know two facts about every president. I think that's my goal. Now I know two about Chester A. Arthur. I learned um, today, I, I was, I think I was watching a Trevor Noah video, but a fact I learned about Woodrow Wilson is that he was like super unwell for like a year and a half of his presidency so his wife edith wilson just like came forward and was like oh he's in his room i'll let you know his decisions on stuff but he was like incapacitated and she was running the country in secret for like a year and a half and i was like we had a secret female president and no one knew after um wasn't wasn't there an assassination attempt on wilson was that after that no he had a stroke Oh, okay. Which <laughs> Trevor Noah pointed out, like, that must have been a big middle finger to the vice president, because it's literally their job to be president when the president's not available. <laughs> he didn't trust but the vice president. Wilson was like, no, I got it. <laughs> no, this is my movie. <laughs> I'm on it. <laughs> so, what did the Chinese um, Exclusion Act do? Mm-hmm. It suspended all legal Chinese immigration for 10 years and declared that Chinese people 
who were already present present in the United States were no longer eligible for naturalization to become citizens. Mm -hmm. Chinese Americans at the time made efforts to challenge the constitutionality of this act. They called it discriminatory, which it absolutely was, but unfortunately they were unable to stop it. Prior to this, one of the things which I thought I had a bullet point, but I guess I forgot to mention, was the fact that, um, oh, here's my bullet point. In 1854, the Supreme Court case of the People versus Hall ruled that Chinese Americans, like Black Americans and Native Americans, were not allowed to testify in court, which made it, oh my God. yeah, it made it literally impossible for them to seek legal justice for the violence right. and discrimination that they were routinely facing. And this was kind of another hurdle that they had to jump when the Chinese Exclusion Act was being put into effect. They couldn't really fight it. Although the same year, I, I don't exactly want to say it was a step forward because it's a really unfortunate situation, but there was sort of a legal loophole that allowed them to gain the ability to testify. Mm-hmm. But again, it was they were unable to use that to stop right. um, the act from being passed. But the situation that gave them this right was um, Ch- uh, when a Chinese man acute, uh, named Jim Lee was shot and killed in Las Vegas. And another Chinese man named Yi Shun was accused of the murder. There was a group of witnesses who were all white and only one of them, because well, you know you couldn't testify if you weren't white. So they were all white and only one of them was pointing their finger at Yi. So the prosecution was really trying to convict him. Yeah. And they were like, well, all of these witnesses that we have, which are legally allowed to testify are like not really helping only one of them is pointing and they wanted to bring in this man named his name is listed as joe chinaman yeah that was a thing they would just make their last name um like joe chinaman was like because they didn't they didn't want to give that they didn't want to learn their chinese name so when they it's like how they americanized a lot of names in on ellis island so like my family's my family's Polish name was Zalewski, but then it became Zaleski because mm-hmm. that's a, the Americanized mm-hmm. version. Essentially, they did that, but in a super racist way. They were just like, yeah. yep, Joe Chinaman. Well, I was going to say, I knew for sure that that could not have been his name at birth, but mm-hmm. I, well, I was like, that can't even be a name, but I, I guess it was. No, it was the name assigned uh, to him. I was kind of worried, like, I, I was kind of worried that that was a slur. Like, I feel like no. I had heard that Okay, making sure that I'm not. No, it's not a slur. That was like legal. Like that's what they were called. There is a scene in Warrior where a character is in court and they refer to him as Joe Chinaman, even though that's like oh well nowhere close to his name. Maybe that's a reference to this situation. But he was brought in to. He claimed to have seen the murder and said that it was Yi. Um, said that it was Yi Shun, and so they allowed him to testify because he put the guy that they wanted to put away away Mm. and this was kind of an awkward situation because again he wasn't legally allowed to testify and when they brought him in they asked him they asked him two questions they said do you identify as christian and do you understand the oath we are asking you to take on the stand and he said well i don't identify as christian but i do understand the severity of this oath i'm taking and this promise i have to take to tell the truth so at the time they took his testimony and used that to put um, Yi Shun in prison for life. They gave him a life sentence. Mm. And he, the defense lawyers 
their story that they were saying was that it was in fact um the chinese gangs of las vegas that were responsible for the murder and they tried to get um joe chinaman's testimony thrown out because of the fact that he wasn't a christian and which is i think an interesting point like now you don't have to be christian to testify you like you can use a different religious text or a different text that's very important to you um but back then it was like only christian people can testify because the only thing we know for sure is that christians care about the bible I roll. that was not the case for this man so they were like well this testimony can't count but unfortunately mm-hmm. um they did not they were like no well, well well no it was good that they held up the testimony because that set a precedent for chinese people and right. non-christians to be able to testify in the future so that opened up things that were helpful in the future but it was the exact same year that the exclusion act was passed so it wasn't quite in time enough to help them and sadly um again we don't really know whether or not yishun actually killed jim lee because what what's sketchy for me is that there was uh, so many witnesses and yet only two of them were like yeah it was him yeah um but sadly um yishun killed himself in prison so that's terrible the i know so the situation that gave Chinese people the right to testify and be part of the legal process was this unfortunate situation which was the murder of a man and the suicide of another like not not a great situation no definitely um but anyway so 1882 the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed and it was set to you know it was supposed to last 10 years and almost exactly 10 years had gone by when California representative Thomas J. Geary proposed the Geary Act, which was put into effect on the day before the 10 years would be up. It was mm-hmm. uh, put in, the Chinese Exclusion Act was signed into law on May 6th, and this was on May 5th. Um, and the Geary Act extended the ban on Chinese immigration for an additional 10 years. And it also put into law this really harmful thing where Chinese residents in the U.S. were now legally required to carry special documentation, a Mm -hmm. certificate of residence. And they had to obtain this document from the Internal Revenue Service. And if they were caught without their certificate, they could be sentenced to hard labor and deportation. And if that sounds vaguely like the Holocaust, yep, it does. It is. (laughs) That's what they did. It's, It's the same thing. This part is so fucked up. I mean, all of it is fucked up, but uh, you could request if you were caught and about to be punished for not having your certificate on you, you could request for your sentence to be reduced to a fine, essentially paying bail money. But the way that the only way you were able to do this is you had to have a credible white witness come and officially vouch for you, Mm. which is so stupid. (laughs) Just like if, if there was any people claiming this didn't this wasn't explicitly racist like that is the clincher right there in 1893 there was a court case to try and get rid of the chinese exclusion act which was called fong yue ting versus the united states and it was unfortunately unsuccessful and then in 1902 which was the the again the 10 years were up the chinese chinese immigration was made 
permanently illegal. Ultimately, the goal of limiting Chinese immigration was successful in that the Chinese population right. sharply declined in the U.S. during this period of the Chinese mm -hmm. Exclusion Act. Uh, unfortunately, this set sort of a precedent where the United States government used this as, yeah, a precedent um, for future immigration restrictions um, to try and stop other undesirable groups from coming to the U.S., such as Middle Easterners. Um, Hindu and East Asians, and it with the Immigra Immigration Act of 1924 prohibited Japanese people from coming mm -hmm. over to the U.S. And uh, it wasn't until 1943 when Chinese immigrants and their American-born families were made eligible to receive citizenship and become er, and come to the country, and that was with the um, Magnuson Act. But it again, this was in 1943, and the reasoning for the repeal of this act wasn't like, oh, we want Chinese people to come. It was because we were in the middle of World War II, and the government was trying to increase morale and encourage more people of all ethnicities to enlist. So yeah. it wasn't like, oh, we see Chinese people as welcome in this country now. It was like, oh, we need them for a purpose. So yeah. We have to do this. So <laughs> that is everything I have on the Chinese Exclusion Act. It was a horrible thing. And I think we should make note of this. It, I don't, it, it just, it felt like a story that I would read today. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It just felt like we've learned absolutely nothing because the same rhetoric is used today and the same, um, like the Muslim ban was like not long ago at all. No, it wasn't. Technically, and... it was only reversed by Biden in January. <laughs> it's really sad. It's very, it's very, very upsetting to hear about and to learn about and to reiterate something I think I said two weeks ago when I talked about the rally that I went to is mm -hmm. that I think there is this idea that like Chuck Schumer specifically yeah. talked about that racism and xenophobia has only existed yeah. so long as Trump has existed in the political arena. And that's just not true. And there was some speaker, I don't remember who at this point, that said, if you think that anti-Asian uh, hate is a new thing in America, yeah. then you need to look at your history. Like, it's always, it's always been like this, you know? It's not a new thing, which is, which is so true. And I think every time an incident occurs like the incident in atlanta like the shootings that we've seen since i hear this this isn't what we're about how could somebody do this how could this occur in this country and it's like look at your do you know nothing about the foundation of this country of course it would occur here of course yeah you know that's upsetting but i'm very grateful that we talked about it so thank you for bringing it up well i'm glad i learned about it i literally used the information that i learned today to like to, to tell to, like I had a, a racist co-worker today like yeah talking to me about like um he basically was making some comment about I don't even remember how it came up but we're about um the fact that Chinese immigrants were the ones who were building the railroad and he was trying to make some comment about like them he was like oh you know that because the Chinese people were building the railroad they put all these casinos and like bars and brothels all along the railroad like just for them or, and I, like he could tell he was immediately like being super racist so he was like oh well actually though but like the Chinese leaders who you know who were in charge of like getting people to make the railroad which I was like no that's not nope 
Um, that's not what happened. <laughs> that's not what happened. Um, they told them that that's not what they wanted. And so I, I had just finished reading about the opium wars and I was like, well, actually like there's this like idea that Chinese people are like, you know, super addicted to these vices and like that it's a problematic assumption to make. And here's all this yeah. stuff I just learned. And he basically was like, well, actually, like, I, I know somebody in the military who, who said that Chinese people actually do want opium. And I was like, no, like, no, they're addicted to it. Yeah. Like, that's not, it's, yeah, it's, it's a big thing. And it's, it's, I also think that beliefs about, um, Asian Americans, I think, I think it's interesting because I think American history was, it really began with, the, the massive amounts of Chinese people coming over as a result of the opium wars. And then that sort of transferred into Japanese yeah. people. And I think it's sort of shifted through time. So it started with the, it started with the Chinese and then it sort of moved on to the Japanese. And obviously there was always anti-Asian rhetoric, but I think the major, like the, the country that we've really focused on has changed. So then it moved from Japan to Korea for the Korean war. And then it moved on to Vietnam and so now we have all these people with all these different identities who have separate traumas with America mm -hmm. because of separate incidences. That's mm -hmm. um, deeply upsetting, you know? And so there is just like this whole very, very long hunt. I mean, long for America, you know, almost our entire history mm -hmm. of discriminating against different groups of Asian people. And then it moved mm -hmm. on to the Middle East, which parts are parts of Asia, you know? Yeah, so. absolutely. I'm going to talk about something that's also upsetting Great. for my middle segment. Great. Let's be more this, upset. This, this, this <laughs> might be kind of a downer of an episode, but again, these are conversations that need we need to be having mm -hmm. as Americans and as white people to educate ourselves and learn. Absolutely. And this one is this one is currently relevant and uh, just something I think we should be aware of because I just I just wanted to Google this and like learn what was happening because I kept hearing people being like eh, like oh stuff's happening in Georgia right now and I didn't know what they were talking about because like as far Georgia as the like, state like, or Georgia the country the state okay I'm aware of what's so, going on in yeah. Georgia and I'm excited for you to talk about it yeah I was not I was like what do you mean like the fact that they're becoming more progressive and like they're voting no. our way <laughs> like no <laughs> like that like that is what happened like more black people voted in the presidential election and that was great and, and then the runoff election and now they're trying to be like we hated that yeah. essentially yeah. is what happened literally the republicans in georgia were like let's make sure that that doesn't happen again mm -hmm. so last month truly terrible governor brian kemp signed a bill into law with a bunch of new regulations on voting which are disproportionately going to make it harder for black people to vote. And he claims that the purpose of the bill is to expand voting access. There are like a couple things that are like kind of useful, I guess, in that here are the few good things about it. A minimum number of, of drop boxes for um, voting ballots is guaranteed but that number is smaller than the number that like there was for the last election. So really it doesn't do anything good. Um, right. And it's, people are like, well, now there's a minimum. It's like, no, you're just making the number of allowed ones smaller. So right. um, there's also now an additional day of early voting and there are more resources for precincts so that the voting lines don't get too long. But those are the only, like, good things, and they're really, like, you can kind of poke holes in them pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, the, one of the big ways that 
it limits voting access is that it shrinks the window for voters requesting mail-in ballots for when they can ask for it. And what they're claiming is that the reason for this is that if there's a more strict cutoff date for um, sending, for getting your ballot and sending it in, then that makes it, they say that it makes it more likely that their voters, that voters will get their ballots ahead of time and mail them back in time for their vote to actually be counted. Rather than allowing voters to request ballots six months before election day, as they used to be able to, the new law says voters can start requesting ballots 78 days out. Counties can begin sending ballots to voters just 29 days before election day, rather than the previous mm. 49 days. It also sets an earlier cutoff date for ballot application requests. And that is a second thing that is very harmful to the process, is that previously, um, applications for voter registration could just be mailed out to literally anyone and if you weren't registered or you you know you wanted to vote you could fill out the application and send it back in now you have to request an application specifically so which is just another step in the process makes it even harder yeah and this one i feel like it's such a no-brainer because i feel like my entire life i've heard so many people say that making the rules for ID requirements for voters more strict only makes it harder for black people to vote. I've been told that my entire life before I even knew about any of this situation. Um, They are making it more strict in terms of the voter ID requirements. Uh, Voters who cast mail ballots will have to provide one of several forms of ID um, with a signature that matches a signature they have previously on record for you to confirm your identity. Um, You also need to provide a driver's license number, a social security number, and like other things that are much easier for white people to procure than otherwise. Like I said, like even though they are giving a minimum, like a minimum number of voting drop boxes, there is also a limit on that. So it's not a helpful situation. No. So... Again, like I, I literally, I don't know how I avoided hearing about this. I think it's because I get all of my news from a few specific sources. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, my news tends to be limited to what they choose to cover. Mm -hmm. And I think I need to try harder in the future to expand where I'm receiving my news from so that I can be aware of situations like this. I tend to, and I know this is probably a, a skewed source, but I tend to just watch like Stephen Colbert and Seth Meyers and right. <laughs> Trevor Noah, and that's where I get most of my news. And then, like, I'll be on social media, but right. I don't find that to be a a good source either. So, <laughs> I'm, I, I need to expand where I get my uh, news from, which, you know, everybody should, like, take a moment and think, where do I get my news from? Is that good? Should I keep doing that? Should I expand it? And if you're yeah. good, then the answer is yes, and you can move on, but something that everybody should do. So that's that new bill that was passed in Georgia. That's not good. We should try and, um, I also want to mention, I don't think you mentioned this, that part of the law is that it's now illegal to distribute food and water to people waiting to vote. Yes, yes, yes. I heard that. (sighs) Which is absolutely ridiculous. Why would Um, you make it illegal to give someone what? Like, that's so dumb. It's, it's like, it's complete. It's How too, evil this, do you have to be? That yeah. specifically targets, it, that specifically discourages people who have a disability that would require them to need water and food in extraordinarily long lines, which again, are a very specific problem to um, voting, voting centers in historically black areas. 
yeah. um, it would discourage them from going. Cause like yeah. if you're diabetic, if you are hyperglycemic, whatever it is, you need access to food and water. And yeah. that is an issue that disproportionately affects black people. Mm-hmm. It's like truly unbelievable. So it's very upsetting. I encourage people to look into it. The other half of the Georgia thing is that you may hear that um, corporations are now pulling out of Georgia in, in major ways. The biggest move that was made is that the MLB moved their mm-hmm. draft and their championship game out of Georgia, a, which was a huge deal. So a bunch of Republicans were like, talking about banning the MLB, talking about like the MLB caving into liberals, like this whole thing. But they were like, no, we will not have our, and that brings in millions of dollars to Georgia, millions. And they were like, no, we will not do it. And other, um, other sports organizations are now starting to follow suit. The PGA tournament um, is this weekend, I believe, and they did not pull out because they said it was too short of a notice, which some people are saying is a BS excuse. Um, And they made like a public statement saying that they support voting rights for all and that they can't pull out at this point because um, if they lost all their sponsorship money, the PGA would sink. So, and I don't know how Mm -hmm. accurate that is, but yeah. that was also an interesting development. And Biden, this was actually happening when I was at the airport, which is why I was like paying attention to it. Biden spoke um, about the situation in Georgia and he was like, I support the MLB's decision. And I um, encourage other centers of commerce to think about um, your action, your involvement in Georgia's economy and what mm-hmm. your affiliation with Georgia means for those people whose rights are being limited something along those lines yeah um, so there's also a lot of uh capital capitalism repercussions in georgia <laughs> at the moment too in addition to um they are being sued to try to overturn the law by somebody i forget who they are trying politicians are trying to get rid of the law yeah i know well i know um that i read that biden is against at least the voting rights change mm-hmm. which makes sense because that is you know, he probably wouldn't be president without those votes. So, um, okay. Are you ready for me to start? Yeah. You asked me about the 442nd infantry, which is formally called the 442nd regimental combat team. The 442nd was a segregated Japanese American regiment. Most remembered for their actions in World War II. I say most remembered. I don't think a lot of people know about them. So I'm going to say most forgotten for their actions mm-hmm. in World War II. I certainly never heard of them, which after I tell you their accomplishments, you're going to be like, why haven't I heard of them? Mm-hmm. So following the attacks on Pearl Harbor, obviously there was a lot of um, anti-Japanese sentiments. As you had mentioned, there already had been a ban on Japanese immigrants in yeah. 1924. Um, but there were many Japanese Americans living in Hawaii and many, many, many of them um, worked to restore the island um, and respond to the emergency of Pearl Harbor. They worked in hospitals. They helped rebuild um, the military site. And at the time in 1942, yeah, 42, the Japanese, sorry, 41, 41. It's the tail end of 41. The ja- at the time in 1941, Japanese represented the largest ethnic group in Hawaii 
and many were the were cadets in the University of Hawaii's Reserve Officers Training Corps, or mm -hmm. ROTC. So they did have a bit of a military presence at the time. But soon after Pearl Harbor, in 1942, FDR signed Executive Order 9066, and this order placed over 100,000 West Coast Japanese residents, the majority of whom were American citizens, into incarceration camps, commonly known as internment camps, but let us be honest, they were concentration camps. Yeah. At the same time, the Army also disbanded the Hawaii Territorial Guard, but then reformed the unit the next day without the involvement of the Japanese. So they were like, nope, we're getting rid of this unit. And the next day they put it back together with no China, with no Japanese members. Mm -hmm. Pure racism. By the end of March, which is only a couple, only a month after FDR signed executive order 9066, all Japanese American men of draft age were redesignated as IV-C or enemy aliens. And as enemy aliens, you could not enroll in the army. Mm-hmm. A group of university students living in Hawaii protested. They were students at the University of Hawaii. Um, students then petitioned the military governor and wrote, quote, Hawaii is our home. The United States is our country. We know but one loyalty, and that is to the stars and stripes. We wish to do our part as loyal Americans in every way possible, and we hereby offer ourselves for whatever service you may see fit to use us. This it's so group amazing of that they were that dedicated to the country, even though they were being so mistreated in it. Well, these were all second. I want to. I want to acknowledge that these were all second generation immigrants. So they'd mm. never been to Japan. They'd only ever lived in oh, America. That's true. Um, which, you know, herit heritage and citizenship are two separate things. You know. Yeah. So in their mind, it was like, yeah, that's our true. parents are Japanese, but we live in America. Like this is. Yeah. I live here. This is my home. Yeah. This group of students turned into the Varsity Victory Volunteers or the three or the Triple V, which was a manual labor support group for the U.S. Army in Hawaii that was largely dominated by Japanese Americans. In Hawaii, they built roads, barracks, and quarried uh, for the military sites there for almost an entire year. On February 1st, 1943, just shy of a year after passing Executive Order 9066, Roosevelt activated the 442nd Regiment. The call for volunteers for this regiment um, got an overwhelming response in Hawaii, and he stated this was going to be a regiment specifically of Japanese Americans. Um, but it did not get a lot of recruits from the mainland. So most of the people that answered this call were Japanese people living in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Two-thirds of that regiment was comprised of Nisai, which are second-generation Japanese Americans. Um, and the other third came from mainland America. There were about, by the end of the war, about 18,000 people served in the 442nd Regiment. Um, so about 12,000 of them were from Hawaii. Ooh, that's more people than I was thinking. Yeah. That's like over the course... That's over the course of the entire war. Oh, okay. Well, still. That's still and more than I thought. To give you an idea of how many people died, the entire regiment was replaced 2.5 times. <gasps> yeah. So they, they kept dying and they kept finding more Japanese Americans to send to serve in this regiment, which is very upsetting. Yes. So the men in this regiment from Hawaii were nicknamed Buddha heads. 
many because many of them had shaved heads like Buddhist monks from living. Okay, in I was gonna say, Hawaii. were they Buddhist? No, it was just like a a nickname that everyone in the mm-hmm. regiment was Japanese, but they given each other these distinctions. So Buddha heads mm-hmm. were people from Hawaii, and the mainlanders were called Katanks, um, and they immediately clashed. Um, the Buddha heads found the Katanks to be sullen and unfriendly, which was likely because they had all just come from literal concentration camps, which you have to remember were, did not exist in Hawaii. There were no internment camps in Hawaii. But the Katanks found the Buddha heads to be impulsive and rude. Um, again, many of these young men were college students who had been working, you know, they had been not in the military but they had been serving the military so they had a very different relationship with the military and the u.s army going into it the katanks also mostly spoke english but the buddha had spoke pidgin which is a hawaiian vernacular that was a mixture of hawaiian japanese portuguese chinese and english it's just which sounds like a wild language yeah so there also was language barriers there the Buddha heads were also generally more wealthy than the Katanks because their parents, A, were still alive and working, um, and so they could send them money. Whereas the Katanks, their parents were all in concentration camps. Yeah. So they were receiving no support from them. So the unit was not working well together at the beginning. And to solve this issue, the army decided to send a group of Buddha heads to visit internment camps in Arkansas. This is, and this part is really sad. So the Buddha heads that were going had assumed that Jerome and Roher, which were the names of the camps, were little towns in Arkansas that they were going to see that were made of Japanese families. Instead, they arrived to these camps and were greeted with barbed wire fences and men pointing machine guns at the Japanese residents. And the men realized like what the Katanks had come from and what yeah. they had been through. And it did do what the army intended it to do in uniting the regiment um, because it very much angered the Buddha heads. And no one said this explicitly, but I believe that a big motivating factor for the Katanks that did join and a, fa- a motivating factor for the Buddha heads from this point was that I think that the army told the Japanese that if they served their country, it would change people's views of them like I think that was because I always wonder it's like well why would they serve besides just being like a a good person I guess um they I do think that there was like if you do this people will see you differently people won't treat you like that I believe that was part of it so their unit's motto was go for broke which you've probably heard that phrase before it's pretty common and that means put everything on the line to win big it was a gambling term I doubt that you knew this, though, when you asked me to cover this topic, but yesterday was National Go for Broke Day. Um, So yesterday was a national day that honors the 442nd Regiment that's celebrated more by the military than anybody else. Um, But they likely picked um, April 5th because on April 5th, 1945, Private First Class Sadao Munemori was killed in action near Saravitsa, Italy, and he became the unit's first Medal of Honor recipient, so they think it's in honor of um, oh. his, his death. There was 
also another infantry battalion that allowed Japanese Americans to serve, but it wasn't exclusively Japanese Americans. They were just allowed to be part of it. And they were known as the 100th Infantry Battalion. The 100th Infantry Battalion went over to Europe before the 442nd Regiment, and they had become an infantry battalion for a different regiment. But in April of 1944, the 442nd and the 100th Infantry Battalion um, met in Italy and they became absorbed together. Now, I don't know a lot about regimental structures, but what I do know is that within a regiment, there are many interest in infantries and battalions. And the 442nd's original first battalion, which if you're in the first battalion, it means like you're the best of the best, I think. Um, it's like your best fighters because those are the people that are leading you first stayed behind to train more soldiers so when they arrived in italy the 100th infantry battalion became the 442nd's first battalion now mm -hmm. normally that battalion would have been renamed under the 442nd but that infantry had already gotten a lot of like acclaim and awards an acknowledgement for their accomplishments from the president that they allowed them to keep their name as an acknowledgement of like the work they had already done. So that's why they're sometimes called the 442nd slash 100th. While overseas, the they had a lot of successes and I'm going to talk about their involvement in the European theater, but it is true that um, the 442nd did go into Asia um, and other in the Pacific theater. But I'm going to talk specifically about Europe because uh, that's where some of their most significant accomplishments occurred. Um, and they are probably most notable for their rescue of the lost battalion in France and their participation in the liberation of Dachau. I was very interested to learn they liberate they were part of the liberation of Dachau because I've been to Dachau and I didn't know that about the I knew obviously that a U.S. army had come through and liberated but I didn't realize that it had been this battalion mm -hmm. um so that was like a cool fact to learn after having visited there so um, but first I'm going to talk about the rescue of the lost battalion so mm -hmm. this occurred in late 1944. At the time of this rescue, the Lost Battalion had come under the command of the 36th Division from Texas and General General John, John Dahlquist, who was a white man. I need this to be mm. known. Mm -hmm. Prior to um, the this this campaign known as the Rescue of the Lost Battalion, the 442nd Regiment had just finished a brutal fight that occurred over a week to liberate two towns in France, Bruyere and Vifontaine, when General Dahlquist said that they needed to rescue a trapped unit. Now, normally when you have this like long period of fighting, the army grants you some like rest time. And a lot of people had died in those two fights. It was, um, they had ended up hiding inside the town and they like barely scraped by. And the fact that they came out of that, having like saved those two towns and liberated them from German occupation was a really big deal in itself. Yeah. Um, so they were like, okay, great. Now we get to rest. And instead this general was like, no, you have to march on and rescue this trapped unit. Now the 141st battalion was the, was the lost unit. 
and they had been sent only four miles ahead of the rest of them, but it is still unknown why Dahlquist ordered that. It was a very strange command, and then they ended up being surrounded by the Germans on three sides, which is why they were later dubbed the Lost Battalion, and they were stranded on a ridge near Sandy. So they were all still in France, and they were not far from Bruyere and Bifontaine. They were attacked by Germans for two days straight um, before the 442nd arrived. Um, They were starving, they were running out of food, and they were surrounded by 6,000 troops on three sides. So the situation was desperate to say the least. So with less than two days of rest since the the end of the fighting in Bifontaine, the 442nd moved to save them on October 25th, 1944, after they had left, the 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 141st had left its unit, the 36th Division, on October 23rd. After four days of fighting, the 442nd had made very little ground against the Germans. Allies had tried to drop supplies, but most of them landed in German-occupied positions, which this point brings me to the fact that that is very true that we don't talk about, that, like, if you're dropping something out of a plane, it's very hard to project where that is going to land. And yeah. so we were just dropping supplies and hoping it ended up at our, with our people, but, like, often it didn't. It just didn't. And that, which like, lines didn't move while you were, like, on your way. Right. That's something I thought about. So a lot of them, they well, they all were starving, very few resources, running out of ammo. The situation is desperate. On October 29th, after these four days, Company Private Barney Hajiro was pinned down on a ridge. He saw enemy machine guns kill eight of his fellow infantrymen. And Hajiro made the sudden decision to charge up the ridge. He ran 100 yards under enemy fire and single-handedly destroyed two machine gun nests and killed two enemy snipers. I have this, like, truly, like, rush of adrenaline moment. He was like, he, this was why, this is, like, sort of living up to that model of go for broke. He truly was just like, I'm just going to give it my all and do my best because it's been four days and we have nothing left at this point. Like, we just got to go for it. But this choice to do this this sudden surge of energy encouraged his comrades to rally and attack the germans his actions inevitably um earned him a distinguished service cross which was eventually updated to a medal of honor as well um and the next day on october 30th the 442nd broke through the german line and got to the lost battalion so it wasn't like his single-handed actions that led to it but this sort of gesture of like we're just gonna go for it and like we have to stop like going forward and back because like we're all gonna die of starvation anyway people really think like this was a major reason why they were able to like really push through and do this um rush to get to the lost battalion their combat Mm -hmm. with the germans lasted six days And in the end, they rescued 211 men from the 141st Battalion. That entire campaign over that six days had over 800 casualties. At this point, the 442nd had been in 16 days of almost nonstop combat. So this had been six days. They had fought um, with in Bruyere and uh, Bifontan for seven days. And then they had two days of rest. So 16 days of 
almost nonstop combat. And after rescuing this battalion, the soldiers once again expected an opportunity to rest. They had absolutely earned it, but instead, General Dahlquist ordered them to continue on, and they continued fighting for nine more days in a different part of France, which is like almost unheard of. And I think this is a really, I had mentioned earlier that this general was a white man, and I think this is a really good example of a white man like using this Japanese battalion as like disposable and being like, no, you have to keep going. Um, and really working them almost to death. Um, they yeah. they are lucky that they were a very, very skilled and very united regiment, um, which is why many of them did survive, although many did not. Like I yeah. said, the, the, the infantry was replaced 2.5 times. So a lot of people died. On November 7th, Private First Class Joe M. Nishimoto who was the acting squad leader of the G Company, which is just like, you have your bit troop, and then you've got like different groups. He was the yeah. leader of Company G, of the second battalion. He broke a. Th- Wait, what song? <laughs> I'm singing the. Oh my god! I just went to sing the um, the <laughs> the bugle boy song, and I was singing the nanny theme song. That's what I was trying to sing, but instead what came out of my mouth was, well, she was working at a bridal shop in Flushing, Queens. Oh my god. (laughs) Anyway, he was the squad leader for G Company of the 2nd Battalion, and he broke a three-day stalemate against German forces near the village of La Houssière. He destroyed a machine gun nest with his hand grenade, and he killed the German crew of a different nest which was very brave. Uh, sadly, Nishimoto was killed in action a week later. He was only 25 years old. He also received Distinguished Service Cross posthumously, and that was also upgraded to a Medal of Honor. The next day, on November 8th, when the 442nd was finally relieved after, I have to do some math, I think 22 days of fighting, no, longer, Ooh. 25 days of fighting, um, the dead and the wounded outnumbered the living soldiers the 442nd ended up at least at less than half its usual strength the k company which started out with 186 men had only 17 riflemen and part of a weapons platoon left all i got was part i don't know how many but it was not many i company had started out with 185 men and at the end there were only eight it's very upsetting on November 12th, horror movie. It is. On November 12th, only four days later, General Dogquist ordered the 442nd to assemble for a recognition ceremony. Seeing the small number of men in formation, he allegedly told them um, and their Lieutenant Colonel Virgil Miller, you disobeyed my orders. I told you to have the whole regiment. And Colonel Virgil Miller looked him in the eye and reportedly said, General, this is the regiment. The rest are either dead or in the hospital. Oh, very upsetting. That, so that was sort of the incident with the Lost Battalion in the following, the month following that. Now we're going to fast forward a little bit to March 9th, 1945, when the 550, the 522nd Field Artillery Battalion left the 442nd Regiment Combat Team at the Maritime Alps. So this was, uh, the 522nd was a smaller part of the 442nd. There are too many numbers. It's all confusing. But 520, yeah. 522nd small piece of the 442nd. 
The 522nd was sent north to the Lorraine region of France to provide artillery support for the Allies' final drive into southern Germany. And essentially, the 522nd became a roving battalion. So instead of being attached to a division, they just went wherever they were told they were needed. And the Nisei of this group completed every single one of their 52 assignments, and they traveled 1,100 miles in 60 days. So they were like this elite class of soldiers that were just going from place to place to help in whatever way they can, and they were all Japanese. But eventually, the 522nd was attached to the 4th Division, which on April 29th, 1945, came upon the barbed wire, a barbed wire field in Dachau, Germany. Technician Ichiro Imamura wrote, I watched as one of the scouts used his carbine to shoot off the chain that held the prison gates shut. He said he just had to open the gates when he saw a couple of the 50 or so prisoners sprawled on the ground, moving weakly. They weren't dead, as he had thought. When the gates swung open, we got our first look at the prisoners. Most of them were Jews. They were wearing black and white striped prison suits and round caps. A few had black blanket rags draped over their shoulders. It was cold, and the snow was two feet deep in some places. There were no German guards they had taken off before we reached the camp. So following the liberation of Dachau, the 522nd, um, their new mission became finding the German soldiers that had taken off with small groups of prisoners. Mm -hmm. And the 522nd subsequently found and liberated many smaller satellite camps. So we know about the big camps, right? We know about Dachau and other large concentration camps, but there were also like small sort of stopping points all over Germany. There were hundreds of them. And so the 522nd traveled around Southern Germany, finding these smaller camps and rescuing the people that had been left there. But then they began to pursue SS officers that had taken Jewish prisoners um, and began, had begun marching them south towards, I believe, Austria, where mm -hmm. the Germans were still in control. On May 2nd, the 522nd found a group of these SS officers and the Nisei in this battalion described the march described those marching or what they had found as an open field with several hundred lumps in the snow the soldiers discovered there were people left to die by the SS officers hundreds of whom were barely not alive just hundreds of people abandoned in a field and the 522nd uh. spent three days um helping them to shelter and giving them food and water they were ordered actually not to give them food because when you're starving it's actually bad for you to like eat a bunch of food so they were part yeah, of them easing them out of food yeah they were part of easing them back from starvation yeah and i think the i don't want to say poetic because it's not poetic but the irony of the situation is that many of these men in this in this infantry had been pulled out of American concentration camps to oh, then yeah. free people in Germany from concentration camps. Yeah. So it was this like odd, sad connection that they shared with th these Jewish people. And I think it's so interesting that we talk about the, um, the American success of liberating concentration camps. But I do think there is, something um really devastating and upsetting about the idea that um people who were integral to 
finding those concentration camps and saving those people's lives for people who were going through something so similar in our own country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think some of the soldiers have stated that that really connected them to the Jewish people and really um, incensed them to keep fighting and keep wanting to go on and find them because it reminded them of their families back home, which is very upsetting. <laughs> that is very upsetting. Yeah. Um, that was in April of 1945. In, in November, the 442nd was sent home at the end of uh, the war had ended. The war ended only five days after the 522nd found those people in the field. So we, they really were at the tail end. Um, also, part of the 442nd Infantry went to... Um, Oh, I'm not forgetting the name of it, but the place where Hitler committed suicide. Like they were there that day oh. when they were when he was surrounded, which oh. is interesting. So the stellar record of the Japanese Americans serving in the 442nd and in the military intelligence service, which was the U.S. Pacific Theater Forces in World War II, that I didn't go into, but they were absolutely a part of, helped change the minds of anti-Japanese Americans in the U.S. And as a result of their dedicated service, what they had been hoping for did kind of happen. There was easing of the restrictions um, for those who could enlist in the military. So Japanese people were free to enlist again. And the restrictions on Japanese people not in the West Coast where there were internment camps was also sort of eased. Um, And eventually 120,000 Japanese people were released as like sort of a gesture of like thanks from the president because of what the 442nd had done. They didn't release all of them quite yet. Um, The internment camps were not formally ended, I believe, until 1946. But there was a direct correlation between um, the early release of Japanese men and the work of the 442nd Infantry. In 2010, various groups of veterans and advocates, including the National Veterans Network, successfully obtained uh, the passage of Bill S-1055, which awarded all members of the 100th and 442nd Infantries, along with the Military Intelligence Service, the Congressional Gold Medal, or the Medal of Honor, for their heroic service Mm -hmm. in World War II. Or sorry, the Congressional Gold Medal, which is different than the Medal of Honor. Many of them had been given the Medal of Honor in the year 2000. There was like a separate ceremony. The 442nd Regimental Combat Team was the most decorated unit for its size and length of service in the history of American warfare. The 4,000 men who initially came to training in 1943 had to to be replaced nearly two and a half times, and in total about 14,000 men served. Sorry, I said 18,000, it was 14,000. In total about 14,000 men served, and they ultimately earned 9,486 Purple Hearts. Like, unbelievable. The unit was also awarded an unprecedented eight presidential unit citations. 21 of its members were awarded medals of honor and members of the 442nd received 18,143 awards in total. In total, in, uh, as I said, including medals of honor. Sorry, <laughs> funny to in total, in total. <laughs> so they received more, were, they received more awards than there were 
men served which i think just shows the veracity which which with which these men fought in this war um i have only one fun fact (laughs) about this whole thing (laughs) which is that (laughs) i thought this was fun is that in the karate kid Mr. Miyagi is a veteran of World War II and he is a veteran of the 442nd Infantry, which is like <laughs> a cool nod, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> oh, this morning I was literally thinking about our podcast and how randomly it'll be like, fun fact. And I'm like, it's really not they're not they're not always fun and then i was like fucked up fact the 442nd rct was deactivated in honolulu in 1946 but it was reactivated again in 1947 in the u.s army reserved and army reserve it was mobilized in 1968 to refill the strategic reserve during the vietnam war and it still carries on the honors and the motto and the traditions of the original unit Today, the 100th Battalion, 442nd Infantry, is the only infantry unit of the Army Reserve. And they have, they were active in um, the war in Afghanistan as well, but they have been inactive since then um, Mm. in the Reserve. But that is everything about the 442nd Infantry. Oh, thank you for telling me about them. That was great. I thought that was so interesting. I really enjoyed learning about that. I had I had none of this knowledge, so uh, it truly goes to show. Like, I mean, why would I know what what infantry Mister Miyagi served in? But now I do. <laughs> another another thing I know. <laughs> well, now we have that knowledge. You know, not <laughs> there's so many parties in the show that I'm like, I know this now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was everything for today thank you so much for listening you can find us on instagram twitter and facebook at ykw ibw podcast you can check out our website i've been wondering.com if you like what you're hearing please consider leaving us a five-star review on itunes and finally if you have something that you've been wondering you can email us at i've been wondering podcast at gmail.com you know what i've been wondering what have you been wondering what's the hollow earth theory we've talked about the flat earth one Oh, (laughs) now this I could, this I could get into. Oh, I often think lovingly about how infuriated you got when I told you about all the random BS and the flat earth theory. There's so much. There's so much BS. The the fact that there's an ice wall just around the world. Oh, I think the part that (laughs) I remember laughing at you getting infuriated about was when I told you that they think it's like CD shaped. And that there's like a rotating light source over it. <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> it's so funny. Okay, I can't. Yes, I will absolutely, absolutely okay. talk about the hollow earth theory. Jane, you know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering, Sarah? I would like you to talk about how we know like nutrition facts. Like, how do we know? like carbohydrates and grams and why are those important and like like when someone's like it has 20 grams of protein in it i don't really know what that means i don't the only thing i know off the top of my head is don't they figure out the amount the calorie amount by like literally burning stuff i don't think so yeah i thought that was a thing because like the calories how much energy it takes to burn that food so they like see how much they they said they set it on fire 
I think so. I feel like that's something Hank Green told me, but I could be wrong. <laughs> I know carbohydrates are like energy and that's yeah. like part of it. I don't know. I'm just curious <laughs> to know how I'll all that's going. I'm not yeah. a nutritionist and I just want to know more about that. Yeah. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Okay. Great. <laughs> Excellent. So next week's very sciencey. The Hollow Earth has no science to it, but oh great! I mean, it's got like it's got science in the way that like flat Earth has science, you know. (laughs) That's what's coming at you next week. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. This is you know what I've been wondering.